We are coming this morning to uh, John chapter 5 as we are resuming our series in the Gospel of John and we are moving out of those opening chapters and especially looking at Jesus's ministry in Galilee and Judea and now we are moving into a new section of John's account of the Lord Jesus from this point until the end of the book almost everything that happens is going to happen in Jerusalem and again I noted last week that John gives us He gives us focused attention on things that the other gospel writers don't because he's wanting us to get a more full-orbed understanding of who Jesus is. And so we have most recently considered um, Jesus' interaction with Nicodemus, his interaction with the woman at the well, um, and then his second miracle, which was the healing of the nobleman's son back in Cana of Galilee where he, he did his first miracle. Um, This morning, we're going to see the third miracle of the seven that John records for us, and we're looking at the healing of the man at the pool in Bethesda on the Sabbath day. And here in John chapter 5, we're looking at verses 1 through 18, and as usual, I know that you'll find it helpful to have your copy of Scripture open to be reading along with me. Now John says, after this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which literally means house of mercy or house of compassion, which has five roofed colonnades. In them lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Some of you are not even 38 years old. It's a long time, 38 years. He had been an invalid when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time. He said to him, do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool. When the water is stirred up and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath, so the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. It's not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this is why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, But he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, if you have been in a Reformed or Calvinistic church for any length of time, you know that we love to talk about tulip. And and sometimes uh, it hasn't been clearly said because we love the doctrines of grace and we love... 
uh, the TULIP anachronism, uh, uh, acronym, sorry, um, that, that this is one of the great principles of the Reformation. Actually, none of the reformers ever talked about TULIP, total depravity, unconditional election, limited determinant, irresistible grace, perseverance of the saints. They never used that analogy, even though they taught those doctrines. But, but some Sunday school teacher in a little Dutchie Sunday school class in Holland came up with it to help the Dutchie students learn about the doctrines of grace. And so we commonly talk about the importance of understanding TULIP um, and those five essential doctrines of grace. Um, and I, I say that because we sometimes don't stop to think about the relationship of all the doctrines of grace. And there's only one of those doctrines, there's only one that you contribute to, and that is total depravity. That's the only one of the doctrines of grace you have a hand in. John Gerstner, the, the old Puritan theologian, uh, scholar, Puritan scholar, said, Total depravity is our one original contribution to tulip. We are the dirty soil in which God plants his flower and from our filth produces a thing of divine beauty. I want you to think about that. We are the dirty soil in which the, the, the grace of God produces a thing of beauty. Now, I tell you that this morning because almost nothing illustrates man's total inability because of the pervasive depravity that we, we, we live in and experience by nature because we're fallen in Adam, almost nothing in the Bible captures a picture of the inability that we have to change ourselves or to do anything pleasing to God than the picture of the man at the pool in Bethesda. He is a picture of absolute hopelessness and helplessness. Um, now, I want us to consider this morning as we look at Jesus' healing of this man and the great sovereign compassion of the Lord Jesus, I want us to consider three things. One, the helplessness of man. And then I want us to consider the compassion of Christ. And then I want us to consider the hatred of the world, the helplessness of this man, the compassion of Christ, and the hatred of the world. We'll notice that Jesus has left that area of Judea in, in Galilee, and now he has gone up, we are told, to a feast of the Jews. Now, scholars don't know what feast this was, and presumably this was Pentecost, 50 days after Passover. It's an unnamed feast, and yet it is one that obviously was known among the Jews, and Jesus, as his custom was, as a faithful covenant-keeping Israelite, as the faithful covenant-keeping Israelite, went up to the feast. And uh, there were, in those days, these pools near the temple. Archaeologists have uncovered what they think this pool was in particular. They say it's the Pool of St. Anne, but... Um, they, they have found multiple pools that existed together, and, and in those days, the, the, the sick and the affirmed would lay around these pools uh, because they believed that there was healing power in these pools. If, if, I know it's 2021, I don't think anybody reads the KJV anymore, but if you happen to read the authorized version of the English translation of the Bible, which most of us don't, there, there is a textual variant here that's found in just a few of the Greek manuscripts, and it says an angel came and stirred the waters. 
Now, I don't know whether that belongs there or not. But, but presumably, the people there at the Pool of Bethesda had, had convinced themselves there were healing powers in these waters. Maybe someone had gone down and maybe they had recovered just by happenstance and they spread far and wide the folklore that this pool had healing powers. Or maybe, as John Calvin actually believed, God had not taken away all the miraculous healings even though he had taken away the prophets. And so Calvin actually believes there was some sort of miraculous healing in these waters. I, I personally don't because here's a man who has been an invalid for 38 years, for almost four decades. Think about that. That's 1983-ish. Not good at math. I hope I'm right. Um, he, he's been there that long. He's been, he's been absolutely in a helpless, hopeless physical position. And he's just hoping maybe somebody will come down and take him into this water, and maybe he'll be healed. Now, um, this man is a picture of what all of us are like by nature. I, I don't need to know anything about you to know this is what you're like by nature. Men will hope in anything other than the Savior for healing. Even when they know it doesn't work. Even when, even when they continue in their miserable estate, they will continue hoping in things that can never change them. They will look to every kind of religion. They will run to every kind of hedonistic practice. They will give themselves to hoping in anything other than in the Savior who can actually save them and do for them what no one else can do for them and they cannot do for themselves. Here's a man who can't do anything for himself and yet he is remaining in this state of misery, hoping that maybe, just maybe, something will happen. One old theologian said, here is human religion with all its cumbersome machinery and disappointing ordinances being waited on and the grace of God slighted. He says about all, everything outside of Christ, he said they all, one and all, fail. Utterly fail. Don't miss that. They all, one and all, fail. Utterly fail. They fail to meet the deep need of the soul. One and all, they are unable to put away sin. And yet, sad to say, they one and all supplant the Christ of God, he is not wanted, he passes by unnoticed. Now, consider this. This man is hoping in religious remedies, and he is ignorant of the person of Christ. Of all the people that Jesus could have gone to, the Savior takes note of this man. He goes to this man. He addresses this man based on his need. And the man has no idea who's talking to him. Now, listen very carefully. Many sinners are just like this man. Jesus is right in front of them, and they have no idea who he is. I remember that was true for me. Um, I think I've told you this. After I was converted, I was sitting reading the parable of the treasure in the field and the pearl of great price, and I remember thinking, 
Jesus is the treasure and he's been right in front of me the whole time and I didn't see him. This man has the savior of the world right in front of him and, and he, just, he just glosses over him. Notice, Jesus comes and he sees him lying there and he approaches him and he says, do you want to be healed? And the sick man says, sir, I don't have anybody to put me in the pool. Here's the only person that can help him. The only one that can meet the deepest needs of his soul. And he says, I don't have anybody to help me. Now, what that man's doing, by the way, he's kind of come to love his misery. He's embraced it. And this is what we do by nature. We know that we're in a miserable condition, but you sort of start to wallow in it and just embrace it. And, and that's true for any believer who was converted out of any kind of past. You know that, that even though you hate what you are, you want to continue in that state because, honestly, it's, it's frightening to think about Christ changing your life. Um, that's, there's, there's something frightening about being healed. Um, well, if that happens, what is my life going to be like? I mean, I had those thoughts when I was young. I didn't want to lose the misery I was wallowing in. Isn't that interesting? This man is a picture of all of that. Now, in, not in, let me say this clearly this morning, not in every case is sickness connected to personal sin. We've got to be very careful. Actually, in chapter 9, in chapter 9, we're going to read about the blind man, and, and they say, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus says, neither. And, and we want to be very careful. And yet, at the end of this account, Jesus says to this man and seems to intimate that there's a possibility this infirmity was related to his sin. He says, go and sin no more so that a worse thing does not happen to you. And so his physical misery is connected to sin, and Jesus is going to show him that what he needs physically is just a picture of what he needs spiritually, and Jesus is going to deal with both of those things. But this man is a picture of absolute helplessness, absolute hopelessness. He's hoping in religious remedies that can never cure him. He's ignorant of the person of Christ, and he's wallowing in misery. Now, I want us to consider, secondly, the compassion of Christ, because really this, this whole passage is focusing on the sovereign compassion of the Lord Jesus. Um, the, the pool is, is in a place called Bethesda, house of mercy. How appropriate, house of compassion. Beth Hesed, the, the sovereign covenant mercy of God. And and you know this, that, that mercy is not getting what we deserve. It's, it's getting the compassion and the kindness of God when we don't deserve the compassion and the kindness of God. There is almost nothing greater to meditate on than the covenant mercy of God. The psalmist will say his mercy, his covenant mercy, his hesed endures forever. His hesed endures forever. His hesed endures forever. Well, here at Bethesda is this man and are many, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And what's interesting is Jesus doesn't heal everyone at that pool. Um, he goes to this one man. And 
The reason for that is that Jesus, when he saves sinners, he does so sovereignly. Remember, God said, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. It's not of him who wills or of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. If mercy is undeserved, then God can show it discriminately. He can show it sovereignly. He will have mercy on whom he will, and he finds this man, and, and this man is a picture of the worst case he could find. Isn't that awesome? When he comes in sovereign mercy, he doesn't come to, to someone who's just sort of just teetering on the fence of messing their lives up. He comes to a man who has been an invalid for almost four decades. He is a picture of absolute hopelessness and helplessness. And Jesus says, I'm going to have mercy on that one. Um, that, by the way, that's the Christ we worship. It's the only Christ there is. Um, I've said throughout this series, nothing will stop the Savior from saving those for whom he came into the world to die and to redeem. Nothing will stop him. He doesn't need you and me. Um, we contribute nothing to it. Remember that again. Our depravity is the one original contribution um, to the tulip, to the doctrine of God's saving grace. And, and Christ comes to this man, and he, he takes note of him. He sees him. He knows he's been there, John says. And, and then he says something strange to this man. He says, do you, do you want to be healed? Now, this would be a little bit... I, let me, let me just go ahead and put this out here. If you're visiting someone in the hospital, please don't say this, okay? Do you want to be healed? That's a little bit like you asking me, do you want to know what it feels like to be a good-looking person? Do you want to be healed? Now, now, Jesus can say that. We would not say that. Why does the Savior say that? What is, it, what is he leading with? And by the way, when you laugh about me not being good-looking, it's affirming. <laughs> um, but, but what is Jesus getting at when he says to this man, do you want to be healed? What, what he's doing is he's trying to get this man to see that, that those that need the Savior are those in whom he works this desire for him. In most cases in the Gospels, uh, blind Bartimaeus being a prime example, they cry out, son of David, have mercy on me. And, and he comes and he has mercy on them. But in this case, Jesus is doing a heart work in this man, and, and he's saying, if you want to get better, if you really want to get better, you need to really want to get better. Um, that was true for me. If you're a believer, that was true for you. There comes a point where you say, I can't. I can't live in this sin anymore. I can't live like this anymore. And Jesus wants us, and, and when he asks this invalid, he's asking me and he's asking you this morning, do you really want to get better? This man was wallowing in his self-pity. And Jesus says, do you want to get well? And the man, as we've already noted, he, he doesn't realize who he's talking to and what Christ can do for him. And and, and he says, I have no man who can carry me down. There's, there's no one that can help me. And, and um, when I try to go down, another steps down before me. Um, and 
Then Jesus says to him, get up, take up your bed, and walk. Now, here is the living word of God, who at the very beginning of this book is said to have made all things, and that all things were made through him. Here is, here is the one who commanded light to shine out of darkness. By the word of his power, the worlds were framed. And, and by the same powerful creative word, he restores what the fall had destroyed in this man's malady. With just a word, take up your bed and walk. Now, it obviously took a measure of faith for that man to do that because he had not moved in 38 years. Um, you get the sense that he's a quadriplegic and that he had never known what it was for four decades to, to move. And, and yet, notice, at once, the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. You know, well, believers in Jesus Christ have different experiences, and though no two conversions are ever the same, and, and sometimes it seems like a process, we've talked about that in people's lives, like Nicodemus, there is one common point that is true for all true believers. When Jesus saves and heals an individual, he does so instantly in their souls. At once, the man was healed. So that if Christ has healed you, that has happened definitively at one time. Now, our sanctification is progressive. We know that. The Christian life is hard and long and difficult and painful. But when, when God, who commanded light to shine out of darkness, shines into our dark hearts, to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, it happens as instantaneously as it did when he commanded light to shine out of darkness at creation. And when the Apostle Paul wants to give an analogy of what happened to a man or a woman, a boy or a girl, when he or she are brought to saving faith in Christ, he, and Eric Alexander says this so well, he ransacks the universe for an illustration, and the only thing he can do is go back to creation and say what God did at creation is what he does in redemption, and with a word, he shines light into the dark recesses of the minds and the hearts of his people so that they can see the glory of God in his face. Um... Jesus comes to this invalid sovereignly. He comes, um, he comes in great mercy and grace. He comes offering him redemption. He comes in healing power. Um, listen to this. John Calvin, I found this really helpful. John Calvin says, However long, therefore, we may be held in suspense, Though we groan under our distresses, let us never be discouraged by the tediousness of the lengthened period. For when our afflictions are long continued, though we discover no end of them, still we ought always to believe that God is a wonderful deliverer who by his power easily removes every obstacle out of the way. Isn't that awesome? This man had to wait 38 years 
for the Savior to remove the obstacle of his sin and his misery. Um, You know, that ought to give us great hope uh, concerning lost friends and loved ones and co-workers. We, we, we often want to see results. And that's not how the God in heaven works. Sometimes it's a long wait before that powerful instant healing. Um, we, we need to resist the urge of trying to domesticate God or to bend him to our desires. Um, At the same time, we must resist the urge of wallowing in our sin and not going to the Lord Jesus for healing. Um, One of the worst things someone could do is to look at this man or the thief on the cross and say, well, there's always hope down the road. There may not be. Remember, it's not up to you. So both are true. And yet Jesus is this powerful Savior. Now, the man takes up his bed and he walks, and and then we're going to now be confronted with the hatred of the world. Now, before I get to that, I want to go back for a second. Um, This man, this man, remember, he's lonely. He has no friends. He's not like the paralytic who had the four friends that brought him to the rooftop and took the roof down and dropped him down so that Jesus could heal him. He has no friends. Maybe he's cantankerous. I thought about that. Maybe he's just a really unenjoyable person to be around. That's probably what it was. Uh, He's wallowing in his misery. He wanted everybody else to be miserable. He didn't have anybody, and everybody else goes down before me. But but there's also a principle there that, that nobody else cares about you when you're in your state of sin and misery. My, my mom very wisely used to tell me that all the friends that I thought cared about me so much, not one of them actually cared about me at all. She was right, because the second I was converted, I saw how uncaring and wicked they were. The world will not love you. The world will not help you. Um, there, are, there are thousands of counterfeit versions of Christianity that present themselves as compassionate, and in each and every case, they are just self-centered and just counterfeit versions of real, true, divine compassion, mercy, and grace. This man had no one that cared about him, and now he's going to see that the religious leaders in Israel don't care about him. Now, this ought to be shocking to us. This man, for the first time in four decades, takes up his bed and he walks, and the religious leaders in Israel are angry about it. By the way, Sinclair Ferguson said nothing angered the Pharisees so much as the compassion of Jesus. I want you to meditate on that for a minute. Nothing angered the religious leaders in Israel so much as the compassion of Jesus. At the end of this account, they're going to try to kill Jesus for healing a man. I want you to really think about that. Um, all they cared about was controlling their religious, um, their religious uh, policing of others. So, right, they, they um, by the way, don't, don't call people Pharisees when they care about your soul and want you to come to Jesus. Let me just disabuse you of that. But, but 
but when there are religious leaders who, who just want to look at their code book and they just want you and, and they're going down and they're like, well, here in section 38, page four, clause D, it says no taking up your bed and walk in. That's what, the, that's what they're doing. It's not lawful. Ferguson said the Pharisees, they, they wrote one book and it was on the Sabbath and it was called how not to break, break the Sabbath. And every chapter and every line was how you don't break the Sabbath. And, and then Jesus wrote a book on the Sabbath, and it's called How to Understand that the Sabbath Day is a Delight for Your Soul. Here is the Lord of the Sabbath, the one who came to give rest and healing, the one who came to redeem and restore. And as this man is walking and he still doesn't know who Jesus is, um, they, they start to berate him. I mean, imagine that. Imagine being so religious. This is the church. This is the Old Covenant church. Imagine being a religious leader in a church and being angry that the Savior healed someone. I mean, it's almost unconscionable how cruel and heartless and hateful all of them were. That instead of rejoicing that God had done something great and powerful, they wanted to stomp out the one who did this. Notice, um, they berate that man. And then notice, notice verse 19, when the man finally comes to know the Savior and who he is, he went away and told the Jews it was Jesus who had healed him. Notice verse 16. This was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Isn't that amazing? This is why they were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Now, notice verse 18. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath... But he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They knew exactly who had healed this man. They knew who he claimed to be. They, they evidently knew that something powerful had happened, something they couldn't do. And instead of praising God and rejoicing in the sovereign compassion of God, they, they sought all the more to kill Jesus. Now, ultimately, ultimately, this man is not saved by Jesus merely saying, take up your bed and walk. Ultimately, this man is saved by Jesus hanging on the cross for him. So Jesus is going to have to take all the sin and all the misery on himself. You know, I thought about this years ago. If you took all the maladies in the Bible, blind, paralyzed, um, all, of the, all of the physical infirmities, and, and you look at the cross, Jesus takes all of them on himself. He's blindfolded when he's led to the cross. He's nailed to the tree, unable to move his limbs. He takes all the maladies of all his people on himself as he takes their sin on himself. Um, the woman with the flow of blood, Jesus has an unstoppable flow of blood. He takes... All of the sin, he even takes the misery to his own body on the tree that he might redeem his people, body and soul. Now, 
you may not have a life anything like this man. You may not be lying invalid for four decades. You may even have your life together functionally. Um, but by nature, we are all this man. And every one of us needs the compassion and the redeeming power of the Lord Jesus. And when we look at the cross, when I look at the tree and I see the Son of God hanging on the tree, crying out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When I hear him crying out, I thirst, when I hear him being reviled, when I see him shedding his blood, I, I think it, it, was, it was my unrighteousness that put him there. It was my depravity that put him there. It was my rebellion that put him there, and yet it was him going there that heals me of all that. That's, that's the response every one of us is to have to this. There is no greater display of the sovereign mercy of the Lord Jesus than when he grants you to see with the eyes of faith him lifted up for your sins, making his soul a sacrifice for sins before God, and taking the hell that you deserve on himself on the cross. Um, that's, that's the place, that's Bethesda. That's the house of mercy. That's the, that's the pool of healing waters. That's the fountain open for cleansing and healing. And here's the good thing, he does it all. All you bring is the filth of your depravity, that's it. Not your prayers, not your earnestness, not your amount of repentance or extent of repentance, not the quality of your faith. Jesus Christ exercises sovereign compassion when he hangs on the tree in order to heal the souls of his people merely by his grace. So I want to ask you this morning, have you ever seen your helplessness? Have you really come to terms with the fact that Apart from him, you're just like this man spiritually. Um, that's necessary if you're going to come to Christ. Secondly, I want to ask you, have you ever seen the sovereign compassion of the Lord Jesus? Have you, have you experienced it? Have you seen it? Do you acknowledge it? Do you long to see it more in your life and in the lives of others? And then I want to ask you this question. Have you come to terms with the fact that, that the unbelieving world around us is always going to hate the only one who can help us and do for us what we can't do. And yet, they need the same Christ that we need. We don't want to despise the Pharisees in a Pharisaic way. They need the same Redeemer. Remember, Saul of Tarsus was a Pharisee, and Jesus made him a preeminent apostle. The same Christ, the same compassion, the same grace that we need. I hope that you'll process these things this morning. You'll ask yourself those questions and that you'll look at the cross and go to the one who can do for you what no one else can do for you. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would make us to see our own helplessness, that you would show us with the eyes of faith, the sovereign compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that you would make us to experience that compassion anew this morning. Lord Jesus, would you have mercy on us? 
Would you make us a people who acknowledge that we bring nothing to you except the sin that makes salvation necessary? And we pray that you would make us long to see others healed and saved, Lord Jesus. We pray that you would give us a greater burden to see your sovereign compassion at work in the lives of those around us who do not know you. So please do these things in us and do them for your namesake, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.